Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. I'm Noelle Hester Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. If you like American Catholic history, become a supporter at Locals or Patreon. Your support helps us to keep producing this podcast as well as other products we have in the works. For more, visit our website, AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. Also, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a great review at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. These help others to find us. So on to today's episode. Today, we're talking about Claude McKay, a poet and author and one of the leading figures in the Harlem Renaissance. McKay lived to be 58, and he was only Catholic for the final four years of his life, but his life story has such a dramatic there-and-back-again arc. Yeah, with gratitude to Tolkien for the phrase, it really does. He begins with a practically idyllic childhood on a tropical island, then he has a scandalizing experience, and the next many decades are filled with seeking a way to return to the idyllic happiness and innocence of his youth. Through his life as a writer, he would use the physical place of his youth as a stand-in for that peace and joy his heart and mind sought. Right. He titled one of his earlier collections of short stories, My Green Hills of Jamaica, after he'd been living in New York City for eight years. And then, finally, as his own chapters are ending, he does find the answers he sought in the most unlikely of places. Since he was a poet and a writer of novels, it's rather fitting that his own story has such epic qualities. Well, the times he lived in help with that. He was born in 1890. He died in 1948. So he was 24 when World War I broke out, 27 when the Bolsheviks took over Russia and launched the Soviet Union, 39 when the Great Depression began, and 49 when Germany invaded Poland to spark World War II. There have been few, if any, 60-year periods in the history of man with such global upheaval. And all this upheaval really fed into his search for peace and truth. It really did. He searched for the perfect ideology, philosophy, or system that would organize and harmonize human activity. But he found all of the isms to be sorely lacking. And that's when he finally accepted that the Catholics he had come to know had some pretty compelling ideas. Okay, so let's give some details about this compelling life story. You already said he was born in 1890 and that he was born on a tropical island. Sure, 1890 in Jamaica. He was born Festus Claude McKay. He was the youngest of his parents' children, and they were well-to-do farmers in a place called Sunnyville. Considering the whole idyllic nature of his childhood, it's hard to imagine a more appropriate name for the place. I know, seriously. But Claude McKay's early life wasn't all sunshine and happiness. No, his father was very strict. The McKays were Protestant and Puritanical. Claude was very much more of a free spirit, particularly in some sensual matters. And this would show up later in life. But for his early years, he lived an outwardly very happy life in a place that was beautiful, sunny, and safe. He was a gifted student, and he read widely. His older brother tutored him and gave him many great books of English literature to read. He began writing his own poetry by age 10. In his teens, a local English farmer, who was white, encouraged him to write poetry in his native dialect rather than trying to write in the king's English. One very important aspect of his idyllic time in Sunnyville was the absence of race consciousness. For the first 20 years of his life, he didn't realize that being black or white made any difference to anyone. His first experience of racism, an experience that really rocked his world and set his path for most of the rest of his life, was 
was in 1911. He was 21, and he went to the capital city of Jamaica, Kingston, to become a constable. It was there that he first met people who believed he was inferior and was only fit for menial jobs just because he was black. He only lasted in Kingston about a year before he returned to Sunnyville. But returning to Sunnyville was not returning home. His understanding of the world had been turned upside down. Sunnyville no longer offered the protection it had afforded him for so long. And this is when his literary output really kicked off. In 1912, he published two very different volumes of verse. The first was called Songs of Jamaica, and it celebrates the pastoral life of the black peasants of Jamaica. The second, Constab Ballads, on the other hand, presents a much darker picture. It presents the plight of blacks in Jamaica, and in several poems explicitly calls out the hardships of life as a black man in Kingston. These two volumes practically establish the two poles of his life going forward. He yearns to return to the former, but he has to confront the latter and fight against it. So he set himself to righting the wrongs he saw, and at first he believed the way to do this was to learn more modern farming techniques and to bring them back to Sunnyville. This meant emigrating to America and studying at the Tuskegee Institute. The Tuskegee Institute had been founded explicitly to educate and train blacks, so it was the place for him, he thought. But to his chagrin, he found extreme racism in the U.S. as well. On top of that, when he enrolled at Tuskegee, he just couldn't handle the very structured quasi-military lifestyle that the Institute imposed on its students. So within a year, he departed Tuskegee for the Kansas State Agricultural College, what is today Kansas State University. While in Kansas, his political interests and involvement began. He began reading W.E.B. Du Bois, the prominent black writer and socialist sympathizer. During these years, he continued to write poetry based in his experiences of racial segregation and mistreatment. In 1914, convinced that his future no longer lay in returning to Jamaica as a farmer, he moved instead to New York City. And just to add one more element of angst and upheaval into the story, shortly after moving to New York, he married his childhood sweetheart. Sounds like a stabilizing event, right? But no, just six months after they married, his wife moved back to Jamaica where their daughter was born. McKay would never meet his daughter and his wife never figured in his life again. So that probably didn't help his sense of peace or stability either. Yeah, no. He continued writing and reading and getting interested in political solutions to the ills of society while working mainly as a waiter at several different establishments. All the while, the First World War was tearing Europe to shreds. Socialism and communism were on the rise in Central and Eastern Europe, and the world order was an utter upheaval. McKay took it all in and was intrigued by the solutions proposed by socialism. He thought he saw in socialism a way forward for blacks. As he saw it, since capitalism had allowed such injustice to hold sway, it clearly wasn't the answer. So, rather than pitting class against class and group against group, an ideology that promised to sweep aside all differences, eliminate the gap between the rulers and the ruled, and elevate the brotherhood of man in mutual cooperation sounded pretty darn good. This became especially prominent to him after the war ended. In the late 19-teens, due to a mass migration of blacks from the South to places like Harlem, race riots became much more frequent and intense. McKay was unable to sit idly by. He had been keeping up his writing and even had a number of pieces published in a few journals and magazines, but it had been a side project up to this point. But in 1919, his writing and activism took on a new life. 
That year, he met Max Eastman and his sister Crystal. Max Eastman would figure large in the rest of McKay's life. The Eastmans were the co-founders and publishers of a new and important socialist magazine called The Liberator. They hired McKay to be an editor in 1919, and that year he published what is now his most well-known poem, If We Must Die. Now, this poem seems to have just burst forth from a man who was just done with it all. It is a strong statement of conviction that the one who is speaking has taken all he can, and he will now fight back against his oppressor no matter the consequences. Before we say more, here's a recording of Claude McKay himself reading If We Must Die. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious part while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. Oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, though far outnumbered, Let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men we'll face the murderer's cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying but fighting back. It's a powerful poem. It sort of frames his activism from here on. He didn't explicitly call for violence in response to oppression, but he didn't just accept things as they were. He was editor of The Liberator for three years. During this time, he got further involved with socialist politics and movements, co-founding a semi-secret organization with other black socialists. Their vision was a socialist revolution within the U.S. They rejected the vision of W.E. Du Bois, who had founded the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. They thought his solution required too much of a compromise with white bourgeois society. They likewise rejected the black nationalism of Marcus Garvey because they didn't want to accept his two options, either a separate parallel black society within America on the one hand or mass emigration to Africa on the other. They sought one classless, colorblind society that encompassed all Americans. And they believed that the ideas of Karl Marx showed the way forward. Needless to say, at this point, McKay was an atheist, or at least an agnostic. He had left far behind the strict puritanical Protestantism of his father, and no other religious system had yet suggested to him a viable alternative to achieve this utopia on earth. However, the religious imagination of his youth didn't quite leave him. Isn't that so often the way? For McKay, this is clear in the opening poem of his first truly major work, Harlem Shadows, published in 1922. Harlem Shadows is considered one of the first works of the Harlem Renaissance. It helped inspire more black writers and other artists to explore and create and tell their stories through art. From about 1922 into the 1930s, there was an explosion of creativity among black artists based in the Harlem neighborhood of Manhattan, really expressing for the first time a view of life and art from the black American experience. And the opening poem of Harlem Shadows is called The Easter Flower. It goes... Far from this foreign Easter damp and chilly, my soul steals to a pear-shaped plot of ground, where gleamed the lilac-tinted Easter lily, soft-scented in the air for yards around. 
alone without a hint of guardian leaf, just like a fragile bell of silver rhyme, it burst to the tomb for freedom sweet and brief in the young pregnant year at Easter time. And many thought it was a sacred sign, and some called it the resurrection flower, and I, a pagan, worshipped at its shrine, yielding my heart unto its perfumed power. So here he's using pastoral imagery inspired by his homeland and explicitly evoking the resurrection of Christ as symbol of what he yearns for, all the while affirming that he is a non-believer, a Christ-haunted non-believer. Yes, clearly. And the idea of triumphing through trial, like Christ did, is also clear in the final poem of Harlem Shadows called Through Agony. I won't read the whole thing because it's longer, but it begins... All night through the eternity of night, pain was my portion, though I could not feel. Deep in my humbled heart you ground your heel, till I was reft of even my inner light, till reason from my mind had taken flight, and all my world went whirling and reel. It goes on about the struggle through agony, and then it ends with, But after sleep I'll wake with greater might, once more to venture on the eternal quest. And venture on the eternal quest he did. In 1922, in addition to publishing Harlem Shadows and My Green Hills of Jamaica, which we mentioned before, he began to travel abroad, not returning full-time to the U.S. until the mid-1930s. He went first to London. He stayed in London for a time, getting to know many more socialists, deepening his commitment to the socialist ideal, and speaking and writing more. Also in 1922, he went to Russia, where he attended the Fourth World Congress of the Communist International, the global Soviet communist governing meeting. While in Russia, he was hailed as a superhero. They rarely saw a black man, let alone an educated and erudite black socialist. He was riding high but only for a short time. It was while there in Russia that his first inkling that socialism may not hold the answers began. First, he saw some of the same strictness, repression, and austerity that had pushed him away from the Protestantism of his father. Then his disenchantment deepened as he witnessed factional struggles for power within the Internationale, and later the struggle between Stalin and Trotsky for control of the Soviet Union. He was more of a Trotskyist, and the purge that followed Stalin's taking power repelled him. What he saw was not a classless society. He saw a ruling class that could talk a good game, but in practice dominated the workers every bit as much, and in many ways more so than the captains of capitalism. So to his mind, if the solution was still socialism, it was socialism as he thought it should be done, not as the Soviets were doing it, nor as W.E.B. Du Bois was doing it. How often have we heard that? Yes, seriously. Socialism works, but it just hasn't been done properly yet. Anyhow, so this struggle to seek the right kind of socialism characterized the ensuing nearly two decades into the late 1930s. His travels took him to Paris, Marseille, and Morocco. In the latter two cities, he dabbled in Islam, but ultimately also found it lacking. During this time, he also indulged in various sensual pleasures. No need to get into details. And he continued to write, including a number of novels. His first, Home to Harlem, was published in 1928. It was the first critically acclaimed novel written by a black author. He followed it up with two others. In all three novels, he explores, in different ways, black characters seeking their own identity in a world dominated by whites and racism. 
All three novels were also controversial and somewhat transgressive for their times, especially in how they dealt with issues of sexuality, race, and the seedier side of society. He also wrote a few items that were not published in his lifetime, including one titled Amiable with Big Teeth that is very interesting. The subtitle is a novel of the love affair between communists and the poor black sheep of Harlem. The title is actually an allusion to the warning Christ gave, Beware Wolves in Sheep's Clothing. The book is about the communists who preyed, if you will, upon the poor and impressionable blacks trying to scrape out a living in Harlem. So in the title, the communists are amiable like sheep, but they have big teeth because they are actually wolves. He completed the manuscript in 1941, but it wasn't rediscovered until 2020 and only recently went to press. So yeah, by 1941, he'd completely given up on socialism as the solution. Yeah, the final nail in the coffin for his socialist tendencies was the 1939 non-aggression pact that Stalin signed with Hitler before the Nazis invaded Poland. After this, he saw socialism for the dangerous, opportunistic, anti-human ideology that it is. He wrote... I don't think Hitler ever had a chance to make his doctrine international. Whoever wanted to join the Bund in America but Germans? But every sentimentalist of all races wants to join the Communist Party because it is hooked up with the idea of helping the long-suffering working class and abused and exploited people. 1942 was the year that changed everything. His finances were down and his health failed. He was forced to seek aid. The place he found aid? The Friendship House in Manhattan. Friendship House had been founded by Catherine de Heck Doherty, an amazing Russian-Canadian woman whom we'll do an episode about at some point. At Friendship House, McKay came into contact with Catholic social <laughs> activism and social teaching for the first time. He'd bumped into Catholicism during his travels in Europe. He was moved by the great cathedrals of Spain, and he'd written a really great poem about a cathedral in Russia, but he attributed their glory to man's divinity alive in stone rather than the living God who inspired the architecture. But now he was in contact with knowledgeable Catholics who were living their faith and living in exactly the way he'd long desired to see people living, loving and helping one another. He developed friendships with Catholics active in the Catholic worker movement and began a correspondence with his co-founder, Dorothy Day, herself a former ardent socialist. And just like that, Claude McKay had found a way back to that Elysian field of his youth. In the teachings of the Catholic Church, he found the place where race and class were utterly immaterial. He found a place where persons helped persons with no regard for demographics or status. In one letter to his old friend Max Eastman, he wrote, I still like to think of people with wonder and love as I did as a boy in Jamaica, and the Catholic Church with its discipline and traditions and understanding of human nature is helping me a lot. He read up on the Catholic Church extensively, including its history, and was delighted to discover that one of the earliest major Catholic civilizations was in Ethiopia. So unlike Protestantism, Catholicism had an ancient history among black people. When his health improved, he began working actively for the Friendship House movement, and his poetry and writing took on a new angle in light of his growing faith in Catholicism. In 1944, he wrote again to his old friend Max Eastman, who was still a committed socialist and atheist. Eastman could not believe his old comrade was considering the Catholic Church an institution he considered to be one of the more totalitarian institutions on earth. McKay wrote to him, if and when I take the step, I want to be intellectually honest and sincere about it. From the social angle, I am quite clear and determined. 
I know that the Catholic Church is the one great organization which can check the communists and probably lick them. Boy, was he a prophet there. But there is also the religious angle. By becoming a Catholic, I would merely be giving religion the proper place it had in my nature and in man's nature. In another letter, shortly before his baptism, he wrote, I do believe in the mystery of the symbol of the mystical body of Jesus Christ, through which all of humanity may be united in brotherly love. After his baptism, he wrote, In joining the Roman Catholic Church, I feel proud of belonging to that vast universal body of Christians, which is the greatest stabilizing force in the world today, standing as a bulwark against the wild and purely materialistic isms that are sweeping the world. And considering how many isms he had investigated, this was no small claim. But he called this conversion the final stage of my hectic life. McKay began submitting poems to the Catholic Worker newspaper, and Catholic themes played a large role in his final collection of poems, which he titled The Cycle. This volume was not received as well as his earlier works, in part because it simply isn't as elegant and powerful from beginning to end, though it has its sublime moments. But also, plenty of critics just didn't like the overt Catholic themes in it. Many critics, then and certainly since his death, dismissed his conversion as something he did as a gesture towards those who had helped him as his health and wealth failed. One critic even suggested that it was a final rebellion against his anti-Catholic puritanical Protestant father. But really, all of these criticisms say more about the critics than about McKay. He was never, ever one to do something lightly or without passion. In fact, he kind of addressed that last criticism when he said, As I continued to get enlightenment, it just flashed upon me that agnosticism, atheism, modernism, capitalism, state socialism, and state communism were all the children of the Pandora's box of Protestantism. No, they just can't handle what McKay found ultimately, and that is the truth of life and Christ and humanity. And truth is the title of one of the lovely poems in The Cycle, and I can't not read it here. Truth by Claude McKay. Lord, shall I find it in thy holy church, or must I give it up as something dead, forever lost, no matter where I search, like dinosaurs with their ancient bed? I found it not in years of unbelief, in science stirring life like budding trees, in revolution like a dazzling thief. Oh, shall I find it on my bended knees? But what is truth? So Pilate asked thee, Lord. So long ago when thou wert manifest as the eternal and incarnate word, chosen of God and by him singly blessed, in this vast world of lies and hate and greed, upon my knees, O Lord, for truth I plead. It's lovely. Yes, he found his home. Festus Claude McKay died of heart failure in 1948 and was buried in Calvary Cemetery in Queens, New York City. Since his death, his reputation as a great poet and observer of the human condition has only grown as the issues he wrote about continue to trouble our society. Hopefully, as more people grapple with his entire corpus of work, more people will come to see the truth, as he finally did. This has been American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by the StarQuest Production Network. If you enjoy American Catholic History, become a supporter on Locals or Patreon. Get information about both and the perks of being a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org support. 
Also, while there, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about Claude McKay, see our upcoming pilgrimages, and find other episodes. And be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy, and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. We love getting feedback and suggestions for episodes. You can email us at feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noel Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest. <laughs>